This is Limitless Possibility. I'm Luke Olivier de Mable. And I'm Yannick Marianne. And what's up to pick for this week, Yannick? Stadia and the state of cloud gaming. Good. And this week, we don't have any follow-ups, so let's jump into your topic. All right. Uh, cloud gaming is a topic that I've been fascinated by for many, many years, and it's one that we've kind of alluded to a couple times throughout the run of the show. Uh, if you're not aware, cloud gaming is when a machine in the cloud runs a video game, and then it's streamed to you via a low-latency video codec, and your computer or whatever device you're playing on sends your controller inputs or keyboard and mouse inputs to the cloud for processing on that machine. And Stadia is Google's entry into that market, which launched back in November of 2019. It was announced about a year ago at GDC, and I've been meaning to talk about Stadia ever since then, um, but for whatever reason, it was never the right topic for the, the week. And uh, because of that, Stadia has gone through one hell of a ride since uh, it was... it was announced and my opinion has changed quite a bit since uh, it was announced so i guess it's good that we're quote-unquote late to the topic i guess so and shortly after stadia's launch uh, surprising everybody microsoft's xcloud was made available to testers as well so i just kind of want to recap the last year of cloud gaming news and talk about what's been going on i want to start off by talking about the stadia announcement uh, it was announced at gdc 2019 by phil harrison and I had forgotten that Phil Harrison went to work at Google, uh, so it was a big shock to me when I saw him at the event. Uh, if you don't know who Phil Harrison is, he was an evangelist and had an eventual VP role at Sony Computer Entertainment from 1992 to 2008, so long time in the PlayStation org. Uh, in 2010, he joined the board of Gaikai, which was the cloud gaming company that eventually became uh, PS4 Remote Play and PlayStation Now. From 2012 to 2015, he was part of Microsoft Game Studios. And then in 2018, he joined the Stadia team. Well, he joined Google to lead the Stadia team. Uh, and it's kind of notable since he's worked for two out of three of the major consoles. And because of his popularity amongst gamers, having him as a figurehead for this project is supposed to give it a legitimacy to Stadia that other game streaming services kind of lacked because they were just weird startups. Previous attempts at streaming games were built on merely streaming from existing platforms. So, I mean, you can look at back at the other services that were out there. There was a PS3 service. There was a PS4 service. Um, there's a PC service. Well, a bunch of PC services because PCs are commodity hardware. And Stadia wanted to differentiate itself by being a distinct platform with unique advantages. And those unique advantages are things that, things that it would gain from being A, in the cloud, and B, being a Google product, uh, which leads to a bunch of different interesting ideas we hadn't really seen executed before in a cloud gaming uh, product. So the first one that stands out is the ambitious target specs. When they announced Stadia, they said that at launch, they were going to have 4K HDR 60fps 5.1 surround sound, which is a lot of shit. A lot of shit over an internet connection, too. Yes, uh, you have to remember that the rest of the industry is struggling to deliver 1080p 60fps reliably. So this feels like a big step up. They also said in the same presentation that in the future, they will also have 8K at 120fps and higher. So like, just, but it's easy to say in the future because there's no time scale for the future. So in an infinite time scale, like who knows? Um, Another one of the neat ideas that they announced alongside Stadia was this controller, which connects directly to your Stadia instance in the cloud over Wi-Fi. Uh, and it does this to reduce input latency because your computer or your phone doesn't need to be the middleman between uh, the controller and the cloud. It just speaks to the cloud directly. Reducing network play latency because all of the Stadia machines reside in Google data centers, which have super fast connections to each other. Uh, this gives predictable LAN-like performance for all games. 
it widens the available player pool for multiplayer games if you compare it with a home connection. And it also makes large synchronized states for tons of players much easier to pull off. Um, there was this notion of state share links where you can send links to specific parts of games with a given state you start at. So one example that was given during the initial uh, presentation was you're playing a horror game on stream and you have this intense moment where you're trying to escape from all these zombies, but you have no health kits in your inventory. Well, you can challenge your audience to relive that same moment by sharing that state uh, via a Stadia link, which is really interesting. Uh, YouTube integration possibilities. You can have Play Now links next to YouTube videos of a game that spin up a Stadia instance in under five seconds and you're playing the game. Uh, Crowdplay is a queuing system that allows you to play with your favorite streamers by saying, I want to play with a streamer because they're in a Crowdplay room. And then you immediately have Stadia pop up and you're the next in line uh, for the next game that they're going to play. Because you're in the same data centers as YouTube, you can simultaneously stream to YouTube at 4K60 for free. Uh, and what I mean by for free is, unlike streaming cloud games on other platforms, you're not streaming on your local computer. The streaming is happening directly in the cloud, so there's no burden on the performance of your local computer and additional burden on your internet connection uh, because you're streaming both ways in those cases. Yeah, it's literally, I guess, like with server infrastructure, like server-to-server communication, which those are uber-reliable and uber-fast. Exactly. This was pretty neat that caught me by surprise. Context-aware Google Assistant. So if you're stuck on a puzzle in a given game, you can just ask Google Assistant to tell you, how do I solve this thing? And it knows where you are in the game. It can look it up on YouTube and show you a video and line on the thing. That's pretty neat. Yeah, quite quite interesting. Uh, Though... I would say that making it easy to quote unquote cheat is uh, maybe uh, not a good idea because, you know, uh, people sometimes they all tend to be like, oh my God, I'm stuck. Uh, and then just like take care of this easy way out. I am sometimes like this, especially if I have an easy way out. Like, for example, Tony played the game like, like I was talking about in uh, Zelda Link's Awakening. So, yeah, sometimes it's easier to, uh, it's simpler or better for you to enjoy the game that it is hard to get the cheat sheet or the cheat code or just like the the FAQ to do what you're stuck into. But at the same time, it's like, it's kind of something that a lot of people do in 2019, 2020. And oh, true, true, true. just having it not... like as a button you can fire up anytime is actually very convenient, even though it can undermine certain things in various games. Right, right, no, for sure. Ah, I, I like the idea. I'm just like, I'm just saying, eh, if it's too easy, people can be like, uh, abuse, not abusing, but, uh, be trigger happy, if you see what I mean. Yep. Uh, another really interesting thing that they, uh, announced was Stream Connect, which is virtual split screen, where, um, like, instead of having split screen multiplayer, where one instance of the game engine is used to render both sides of the split screen, uh, in this case, each screen split is a different Stadia machine. And this is to combat modern game engine limitations, which make split screen much more complicated to implement than it used to be in the old days. Uh, and basically, this would solve this problem by basically putting you in a multiplayer game together. It's just presented in a split screen manner, which is kind of interesting. 
But Google didn't want to limit themselves to just being like a platform for gamers. They wanted to also become a platform for developers. And they've had this cloud-enriched developer tool suite uh, that they've started making available to game developers. So by developing to the Stadia platform, your game is not limited to the hardware of one single machine, but it can scale across many to make use of more advanced simulations. So the example that came up during the presentation was fluid dynamics. Uh, fluid dynamic simulations are incredibly compute heavy, and you can just crank the dial up and say, I want this parallelized on eight GPUs instead of one, and there are eight GPUs in the cloud, so it's just going to happen. I'm not entirely sure that this will actually work out in the end, um, but we'll see. Uh, the other really interesting thing that they announced was machine learning tools such as Style Transfer ML. Style Transfer ML is a machine language process where you can basically give it an input image and it will take your grayscale game and style it completely based on the color palettes and observed uh, textures and patterns from the input image. Uh, so they were putting in like famous paintings or screenshots of Pac-Man and stuff and coming with really wacky aesthetics for your game. Uh, and this was made to facilitate experimentation to try and find like what the visual style of your game should be much more quickly than it is to actually like manually go in and make your own textures uh, to try things out in engine. That is like the complete list of all of the unique features that are part of Stadia that were announced during that event. It was a lot of stuff, honestly, and it, a lot of it was very fresh and rare, like felt like a unique advantage that Google could really capitalize on. Yeah, that's a long checklist where I would see like the typical like, here's all the feature that we do as Stadia. And then let's add the two or three features that everybody does in the industry. And then we just have a bunch of tech marks and our competition does not on those like marketing, marketing checklists. Definitely. Um, so can you guess how the internet reacted to this announcement? Oh, I would say they went crazy, but I think they complained if I recall correctly. Yeah, so the big complaints immediately following the Stadia announcement had almost nothing to do with the actual announcement event itself and just the threat that Stadia represents to the notion of game ownership. Technically, the Stadia console is a Debian Linux machine running in the cloud. Um, but despite being a Debian Linux PC running in the cloud, Stadia can't run PC games you already own, and you cannot install Stadia games on a Debian Linux PC of your own. It, its existence, the existence of your game, is integrally tied with the existence of the Stadia service, and as soon as Stadia shuts down, those games are gone. Uh, and because Google shuts stuff down every single week, that is kind <laughs> of a risk. Uh, this kind of uh, just small tangent about go Google shutting down every stuff every week. Uh, this reminds me of a, t a tangent tweet that I've seen this week that is about let's say if we rename all the Google messaging app as just like the name yeah. Google messaging and the year. And I think there was like two in 2016. So it's like Google messaging 2016 one and Google messaging 2016 two. So yeah. Yeah. Uh, Google and getting products. But the funny thing about the messaging ones is there's usually at least like four of them running in parallel. Yeah. <laughs> and correct me if I'm wrong, but the way I recalled it is that you need to buy the games plus be a recurring subscription to have access to Stadia. Not quite. So um, the the subscription is kind of like PlayStation Plus, where it is an optional subscription, but you get discounts on games and occasionally free games. 
Uh, and due to the way Stadia is currently rolling out, which I'll cover in a little bit, currently pretty much everyone who has Stadia happens to have the Stadia premium subscription enabled right now. But mm -hmm. in two months, it, it'll be gone and everybody will be a base user. Okay, because it's kind of a launch, uh, launch GIF, uh, more or less. Yeah, it's like if you buy a Stadia bundle, you get a certain amount of months of Stadia premium included with it and right now everyone is in that period so but yes you do actually have to buy games and we'll get into that in a little bit um getting back to the point that like the existence of these games is dependent on the service existing it's also kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy where if enough gamers think stadia is bad regardless of whether stadia actually is bad or not stadia is more likely to shut down due to lack of interest than stick around because all of these gamers are not using Stadia. Uh, if they actually gave Stadia a fair shot and actually might, some percentage of them might actually keep using it, but they're not even willing to give it a shot because it's too disgusting to them to even consider that. Now, what we need to contrast this to is other services. There are services like GeForce Now, Shadow, or Parsec, which are PC-based uh, streaming services where fundamentally all you're doing is you're borrowing a PC with a very high-powered GPU in the cloud that can run any Windows game you already own on whatever service you have, whether it be Steam, uh, Epic Game Store, uh, Battle.net, all of those services. You can just log into them as if you were sitting in front of uh, any other PC. So if we rewind to March 2019... Immediately after this announcement, what was my personal opinion at this point? Well, I was actually surprisingly relatively optimistic because Google is no stranger to large amounts of streaming video because they own YouTube. Uh, and YouTube also has a live component. So they also do a large amount of streaming video, even though it's not like, it's not like Twitch numbers for gaming. Uh, it's still, relatively high numbers just because they're youtube they're a huge player and even if they have a smaller piece of the pie it's still large large numbers right i haven't done too much of youtube live watching but are they able to uh, uh provide like 4k 30 i guess like they do with normal youtube videos i believe the launch announcement for stadia was actually 4k 60 oh wow but so okay hmm uh, although, mm. funnily enough, there were a bunch of stream issues during the Stadia launch announcement, which yeah, did not yeah. help. <laughs> but I also wonder if, like, when you li stream live from YouTube, just like a, as let's say as a YouTuber, uh, if it is able to provide you with the same quality settings as if uh, you're just like re-watching a video that is stored in YouTube. And I believe so. Wow. Okay. Hmm. Interesting. Um, one of the other things that I find particularly interesting about what YouTube Live does is that compared to Twitch, they have very little delay, uh, which honestly, for a gaming-focused service where you're interested in response time, like that fares pretty well for your service compared to Twitch, where Twitch, there is a significantly more delay when you're watching a stream versus like, uh, because so many of the streams have the chat on the right sidebar or whatever showing up on stream that you can type something and you immediately see the visual feedback of when it actually shows up on the stream. And for Twitch, it might be like 30 to 45 seconds, where on YouTube Live, it's almost instantaneous, uh, which is a huge difference. Hmm. And do you know if it's built on purpose that there's like this uh, 30 seconds delay? Or uh, it's just like maybe part of like it's technical, I would say technical burden of their architecture? I know that on Twitch, there are like, numerous settings for controlling the delay uh because 
in certain cases, if you're having like a game tournament or something, you may actually want to add additional delay just so if someone in the team, if it's an online tournament, for example, you don't want someone from the team to be watching the stream while they're playing to find out what the opponents are doing. Uh, so you can like force additional delay. And I know that for uh, like extremely popular streamers, you can also do like a reduced delay mode, which I think just prioritizes your stream on a queue for video encoding or something like that. So I'm, I'm not sure how much of it is intentional and how much of it is just infrastructure and all of that oh, stuff. Okay, I see. Um, but YouTube live generally like, it's significantly less delay than the average I see on Twitch. Uh, so one other big reason I was optimistic is that this was the first try at cloud gaming by a massive established tech company instead of a startup that was relying on co- commodity hardware and software. Like, you haven't really seen Apple doing gaming streaming because it's not really relevant to their business. You haven't really seen Facebook do that. Amazon could. But yeah, I was about to say that. They seem to be more invested in actually just having native games developed for their uh, Fire TV platform, which is not going so well. I mean, Amazon owns a game studio, but I have never seen any of their games actually being played by anyone. So that's not great. Yeah, at this point, Apple in its Apple Arcade initiative would be more successful than Amazon. And Microsoft at the time had not announced xCloud. Uh, had they? I think they might have, but it it still felt too far away in the future and didn't feel like an actual right. product yet. Whereas this was being positioned as an actual product. And xCloud is also built on top of Azure, if I recall correctly. Yes. Um, but like a bunch of Xbox One architecture was already built on top of Azure to begin with. But like this is just an extra part of that infrastructure being built up. Right. Personally, the issues around the game ownership stuff are not a huge deal to me because I'm actually only really interested in playing one kind of genre on Stadia, and that genre is MMORPGs, and they're kind of the best suited genre for this kind of thing because MMOs will only ever live as long as the game developer decides to keep the servers up, so it has an expiration date already, so like I don't care that the expiration date exists. Patches being done automatically done in the cloud means that your gaming will never get stalled by long patch downloads, which is like so much of my PS4 experience. (laughs) Games running in the cloud means that your limited disk space isn't being gobbled up by massive MMOs. Destiny 2 is pushing 60 gigs right now, and it's probably going to be more. Uh, Actually, no, they've actually changed their philosophy because people complained that Destiny was getting too big. So now they are deleting content from the game, which is not the greatest solution either but there you go uh mmorpgs with hot bar combat systems have more forgiving timing requirements for queuing actions which makes them perfect for a streaming environment a controlled environment like a machine in the cloud means less possibility for cheats and hacks which is great for mmos and when you're really in it to an mmo all you want to do is play it whenever and wherever you can which streaming services enable so it's kind of the perfect match for this thing and at least right now, there are not very many MMOs on these ser- streaming services, but that's kind of the hope I have for these services, right? At least at the moment when Stadia was announced, and it will slowly evolve as we go over time. So let's talk about like between the announcement and the launch, because this was announced in March, and it didn't launch until November. So there was a bunch of other time in between where they could have little streams where they were saying, oh yeah, this game is coming out on Stadia, and this game is coming out on Stadia, and... 
sometimes maybe they say stupid shit they shouldn't say. Uh, so, so one of the things that happened, uh, in that window was that Samurai Showdown and, uh, I was going to say Mario Kart because I have MK in my notes, but no, Mortal Kombat 11, di- very different game, uh, two fighting games were announced as part of the original Stadia launch lineup. Samurai Showdown is especially noticeable because it currently is not available on PC at all. And people are very, very loud about complaining about this uh, because it still isn't on PC today. And it's going to come out someday, maybe. So wait, it is not on PC, but it is on Stadia? Yes. Wow. Okay, this is, I guess it's good for Google. Well, kind of. So fighting games have tight timing windows for execution and a streaming environment is pretty much the worst possible case for those kinds of games it's like playing music games over streaming it's not going to be ideal and in fact it probably isn't really viable at all and most fighting games that are being developed right now are barely playable online anyway because developers are opting to use a less than optimal approach for netcode this is kind of the entire last year of fighting game community discourse so i don't really want to spend too much time on it (laughs) But there are two kinds of netcode. There's delay-based netcode, which is garbage, and there's uh, rollback netcode, which is fantastic. And 95% of fighting games that are released use delay-based netcode. And then, like, the five ugliest, uh, 5% of the ugliest games uh, use rollback netcode and play wonderfully online, except they're disgusting and nobody wants to play them. Uh, so it's a great time to be a fighting game fan, everyone. But yeah, be- because of like this terrible netcode that is in most fighting games, having that plus the streaming aspect mean- means you're probably not going to want to play against other players online because it's barely playable when you're playing locally. Uh, so it could, it- it's not a great look. Uh, Mario Kart, uh, not Mario Kart. God damn it. Mortal Kombat 11 does have rollback netcode though. But uh, like I said, like I-, I don't like the game because it's too gross. Amusingly, PlayStation Now also launched with a ton of fighting games available for streaming since its launch as well, and people complained about it for the same reason. So to me, at this moment, like between the the announcement and the launch of the service, the idea is when, when you're putting fighting games on your streaming service, and especially when you like dedicate a stream to announce that you are putting fighting games on your streaming service, it is a sign of confidence in the product you're launching. Because since streaming is the worst possible case scenario for fighting games... You're saying this is a good benchmark for the performance of our service and our connection. And it's easy to extrapolate the presence of fighting game on your service as we believe this game is playable in our current state. Now, the alternative to that is we strive for this to someday be playable on our service. Uh, and that's kind of how it launched on PlayStation Now, which is like, maybe one day these games will be playable. But for now, like, not really. Wow. And the thing that kind of sucks about that approach is... It's more worrisome because it implies you you know that you're selling people a game that isn't even really playable on your service. Uh, so, yeah. So if we take that into consideration and then look back at my hypothesis about Stadia, that Google is best positioned to improve on game streaming because, uh, where other companies were lacking. I mean, like, of course they've got fighting games on there. They want to flex their advantage against the competition. And then a month before launch, Stadia... Decide, uh, one of the Stadia, uh, people, I forget what his name is, puts their foot in their mouth and mentions negative latency, which is the dumbest phrase I have ever heard about anything related to latency on the network. Negative latency basically. Uh, what, what? Negative latency? See, now you're getting the idea. That's what everybody said, exactly in that tone of voice. 
Okay, okay. That's, I'll let you continue. So negative latency refers to a bunch of pie-in-the-sky ideas of how games could be optimized entirely around streaming, and they could use some kind of magic to predict what user inputs would come over the cloud before they happen to render and send frames of what the user will do before we actually know what the user's input is. Oh my goodness. This sounds similar, if you're a fighting game player, to rollback netcode, which is what I mentioned earlier, uh, which is a very hot topic. But instead of doing the prediction for the opponent, it's happening to the player, which is not what you want in any scenario. Because the opponent, it's, you will eventually receive the thing and you can correct it afterwards and everything will be fine. But if both players in a multiplayer game are predicting both the player and the opponent's moves before they happen, basically you have like the computer playing against itself and then randomly like being jolted in different directions because of player input, and it doesn't seem smooth at all. And this isn't just like my uninformed, stupid gamer opinion about the topic. Like actual netcode experts across the gaming industry disagree that this is even viable option to begin with. And what that means is it really hurts Stadia's credibility amongst gamers because you have all of these people who actually develop network games for a living saying, this is bullshit, and you have Stadia saying, we're going to have negative latency, everything's going to be fine. And people are going to believe the people who actually made network-based games. <laughs> so that happened a month before launch, and it really, really pissed off a lot of people. And it really hurt their credibility. And I think like my opinion of Google's ability to actually improve on streaming gaming was reduced significantly just because they said something this stupid right before launch <laughs> which is not great but then the launch came around and uh i watched a lot of video reviews because i think like watching video reviews of people actually playing the games is more informative than reading a bunch of text about how it was a little bit glitchy if you can't see the glitching like you don't know how bad it actually is and on a purely technical performance level, I think Stadia generally met the expectations of reviewers in the media. One of the things that really came up a lot in those initial reviews was, it looks like you're watching a Twitch stream, which is not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, that's pretty much what it is. It's just you, your input is coming into that stream and doing stuff. There was input lag that was perceptible, but still playable. And this generally means like single player games are playable just fine. You're probably not going to want to play multiplayer competitive games on this because you're going to be at a disadvantage. Although the interesting thing about Stadia is technically everyone is going to have the same input lag because they're all going to be over Stadia. Uh, because even though uh, cross-platform play was mentioned as a feature in the original stream, I don't think there's a single game on Stadia right now that actually does cross-platform play. Oh, so you, right now you would be playing again other, against other Stadia players. Yes. Huh. So another really interesting thing is that even though like so much of the initial announcement around Stadia was 4K, HDR, 60 FPS. <laughs> With that tone, right? Yeah. Uh, Digital Foundry <laughs> found that two of the flagship games that were launching with Stadia weren't actually being rendered at 4K. So Red Dead Redemption is 1440p. Destiny 2, which is arguably the biggest flagship launch title for Stadia, was capped at 1080p, which is not great at all when you're hyping up 4K HDR all the time. Yeah, you could in theory say that 1440p is quote-unquote 4K, but like if you're 1080p, like come on, don't try to say it's 4K. It's not 4K, and it's really weird because it, like hardware-wise, 
there's no way that Destiny 2 can't run at 4K on the hardware they have because Destiny 2 is, funnily enough, not actually that demanding as a uh, specs-wise. Uh, so it, it will run on basically like any recent PC as long as it has a graphics card that is not integrated graphics and you can get 4k rather easily on it. So I don't understand why it's 1080p at all on Stadia, especially when they were a launch partner and like you got a free copy of destiny two with the hardware. I don't get it. One of the biggest complaints that came out during the Stadia launch coverage that I noticed was that unlike most platform launches, there weren't really any exciting launch games to talk about. Only one of the games that was released on Stadia at launch was an exclusive and the exclusive game had no Stadia exclusive features. Uh, well, aside from the fact that the game was only on Stadia. I mean, like, it didn't use any of the Stadia unique advantages that I listed during the announcement portion. Instead, it was a pretty standard indie game that could have been on any existing console. Most of the launch lineup for Stadia consisted of year-old PC and multi-platform titles. Uh, anything that is not a year-old PC and multi-platform title is more than a year-old PC and multi-platform title. So there you go. And I mean, like, it's a good thing because it gave reviewers direct comparison points for their reviews, but it didn't really excite anyone. There was nothing really you were excited to check out on Stadia because you played it all already, probably. Now, this is the part where I unfortunately have to disappoint everyone who was excited about the stuff in the announcement section because none of the truly interesting Stadia unique features were available at launch at all. And gamers absolutely hated that. So it turns out that if you list a bunch of cool features and you don't give a time frame for when they'll go live, gamers will assume it will be there at launch, and then they'll be very betrayed when it's not. <laughs> uh, see also No Man's Sky, which is kind of the entire story of that game. Uh, there was also a bit of like the creator of the game talking about what goes on in your head while you're playing the game and gamers interpreting the, uh, that as, oh, this is going to be in the game. No, it's going to be in your head while you're playing the game, which is completely different. Uh, but putting that aside, uh, looking back at it now, the GDC announcement was actually a really good internal pitch presentation for why Google should fund this platform. But it's a terrible <laughs> announcement if you're trying to announce a product that is going to be coming out in November because... Effectively, nothing they showed during that announcement actually turned out to be true, aside from the fact that they were streaming Destiny 2 at 1080p. And even then, like, it wasn't 4K. It was just 1080p. So, whoa, wait. So, all the features from the checklist at the beginning of this episode, all of them are, like, not available as we speak. So, I'm going to go back through all of them, and I'll tell you which ones are available. Ambitious target specs. So, with an asterisk, it's there. Like, some games actually do play at 4K. There is HDR, there is 60 FPS, there is 5.1 surround sound. It's just, like, the two flagship games that they found were not running at 4K for some reason. So, I'm willing to give ambitious target specs to them partially. The controller that works over Wi-Fi, that is also kind of half working. It only works over Wi-Fi if you're playing over at Chromecast. If you're working, if you're playing through a phone, a tablet, or a PC, you need to plug it in via USB-C. Hmm. Reducing network play latency because all Stadia machines reside in Google data centers. Like, that's true, but it doesn't really matter for any of the games. <laughs> State share does not exist. None of the YouTube integration possibilities uh, have launched. Context aware Google Assistant? I think right now you just have the plain old normal Google Assistant. It doesn't seem to be context aware of what ha- what's happening in the game. The developer tools, it's hard for me to judge because I'm not a developer, so I don't have access to it. And none of the games so far have Stream Connect for virtual split screen. 
So hmm. basically nothing that I mentioned is actually available right now. What makes things worse is that uh, reviewers were playing on an even more limited version of Stadia than the one that is currently there. Uh, it continues the sort of weird trend in 2019 of like games being given to reviewers without the day one patches. And then everyone writes reviews complaining about all the shit that's fixed in the day one patch, but it's too late. The review's written and then they ship the review and then everybody hates the game and they don't care about the day one patch because they were reading the review that told them it sucked. So Stadia was kind of in that same situation where even the few features that actually turned out to be working at launch, those features weren't actually in the version the reviewers were using, which made it even shittier, which means the reviewers were even shittier. Then there's the arcane launch strategy. So I kind of alluded to this earlier. Uh, right now, you sort of don't have a choice but to, well, you you almost don't have a choice to buy hardware to actually get this, which is kind of weird because this is supposed to be a virtual console that has no hardware. Uh, so... Before Stadia launched, you could pre-order the Stadia Founders Edition. Uh, this was between the GDC announcement and until launch. This would get you a Chromecast Ultra, which is the 4K Chromecast, the Stadia controller, an invite code for you with three months of premium access, and three invite codes for your friends, uh, or buddy codes as they're called. Once Stadia had officially launched, you can get the Stadia Premier Edition, which is basically the same bundle, except the controller is a different color. <laughs> and the buddy codes aren't included, so you can't invite your friends. For the same price? For cheaper? Same price. Okay, so it's uh, a shittier deal because of the, the buddy codes. Yes. Uh, the other thing the, that was mentioned on ATP by John Syracuse when he tried Stadia is if you have the Founders Edition, you get to have like whatever username you want, and it's actually the username you want if you buy a stadia bundle afterwards your username will have four random numbers at the end of it for no reason because that is the trend in gaming social networks right now uh they let everyone have whatever name they want but they add a random number suffix to the end of it to distinguish all of the users from each other and oh. only founders edition people actually get to have the username they want if i want to be sakurina on stadia today and by premiere edition i'm going to be like sakurina 5730 and i'm stuck with it wow yeah uh despite being compatible with all of the major console controllers and accessible from any device with a chrome browser you can't actually join stadia right now unless you buy one of these bundles or you're given a buddy code uh, which again those were only available if you had the founders edition so you had to know someone who pre-ordered stadia so that means if you want to play Stadia right now, your buy-in price is $169 for a service with 26 games available. And in the future, there's going to be about one game release a month, most of which are old PC games you can already get for like $10 on Steam, but they're going to be sold at full price. Unless you have an active Ooh. premium membership, which have added rebates, but even with the added rebates, they cost more than they cost on console and PC. So it's a tough sell. And then on January 28th, this tweet from Nestbot, which is a uh, a bot that kind of like reads Resetero, which is a gaming forum, posted this tweet. Stadia has officially gone 40 days without a new game announcement or release, feature update, or real community update. Stadia has been out for 69 days. Nice. Wow. <laughs> so, it's not looking good. I think maybe by the time this podcast is out, maybe Stadia will be canceled. Um, so... <laughs> It's not great. Wow. Uh, similarly, there are many sites out there that track online user bases for multiplayer games on various platforms, and the online population of all Stadia games has absolutely tanked after the first few weeks. 
um, the few optimists that Stadia had, and there were honestly very few of us, uh, who were excited about the new innovations in the cloud gaming space quickly disappeared after they realized that A, none of that was happening around launch, and B, they destroyed all of their credibility with a negative latency shit. And all that's left around Stadia now is this climate of gamer negativity around it. So instead of dwelling in that climate of gamer negativity, negativity let's talk about something cool, which is xCloud. So <laughs> Microsoft has been teasing xCloud for, I think, at least two years, and they've made some pretty impressive changes to their game delivery uh, infrastructure and their stores to allow for this kind of thing to happen. And the game ownership model is completely different from Stadia. The way it works is you log into a virtual Xbox in the cloud, and all of the games you own digitally or have due to a Game Pass subscription are pre-installed on that virtual Xbox. In reality, they're not actually pre-installed. They're being streamed over, streamed over a network partition. But fundamentally, to the user, it just looks like they're installed on the Xbox. So the game ownership is exactly the same as with a regular Xbox. The only games that are exempt from being playable on xCloud are those on physical discs, on physical, ah, on physical discs for obvious reasons. Uh, you're not going to put your Blu-ray in one Xbox and have it read in the cloud. And this is very similar to what everyone was assuming PlayStation Now would be in the PS3 era. I remember buying Gran Turismo 6 digitally because I had the intention to play it over streaming on the PlayStation Vita, and that never fucking happened. So <laughs> at least Microsoft kind of got the right idea. It also has completely different priorities. Instead of choosing to impress with 4K, HDR, and 5.1, Microsoft chose to bet everything on response time. And they are primarily targeting uh, games that are playable on phones. So they're targeting phone displays, which don't actually need all of this shit to actually look good. Like the screen is small enough that the imperfections don't come across as well. This is kind of what people are saying about the Switch as well. Um, one of the advantages of uh, not having all the bells and whistles is that this is less data to stream over the network uh, compared to Stadia when you don't try to do as much, and especially over 4G. Once again, if you're trying to get this playable on phones, uh, you want to reduce the bandwidth uh, much more than when you're targeting a home solution. And the most interesting part for me is that the first wave of tests shows that input lag on xCloud is comparable to playing games on a TV with game mode disabled. Wow. Like, honestly, that's probably most people who have an Xbox One, because I don't think most people enable game mode. I think it's a niche portion of the market that actually knows about game mode and actually bothers to go enable it so that is quite impressive to me and it seems oh. to be much more tolerant of lower uh, lower quality connections and all of that stuff so i don't know all of this is incredibly promising to me of course i don't have access to it so i'm just like going off of shit i've seen on youtube but i'm very excited for where this is going and this is where i introduced my speculation I don't know if you've heard this, but it was announced that all of the games for the next Xbox, which is unfortunately called the Xbox Series X, which is a terrible name, uh, will also run on all existing Xbox One hardware, which kind of confused a lot of people because there has been one trailer for an Xbox Series X game, and there's no way the original Xbox One can do any of that because the original Xbox One is a piece of garbage. Uh, so... <laughs> It, like there was a whole, I think, half hour podcast uh, from Digital Foundry about like uh, speculating about what was going to happen. And honestly, my guess is that the original Xbox One model and the Xbox One S 
are probably going to use xCloud as a forward compatibility strategy, kind of like PS Now was backward compatibility to play PS3 games on PS4. Which makes sense. Where you're going to have this Xbox Series X in the cloud that is going to be running your newer game, and you're just going to be connecting to it from your Xbox One or Xbox One S. I have no proof or anything to indicate that this is actually going to happen, but if this actually works out, as well as the tests show it is working right now, I have no trouble believing that they would go in that direction. So look for that. Yeah, and one thing I like is that uh, Exod is kind of becoming a companion to your main game console, or even if they were going into the... Uh, uh, they sup- No, they're only Xbox One, right? They're not supporting anything PC-related. Uh, not via Xcloud, no. No, so, but still, like, you could imagine that the next version of it could also be for PC gamers, and that is, is more or less a companion of your gaming PC at home or your Xbox One, and then when you're on the go or, like, not around your TV, you can just, just use that and play with it. Yep, yeah, it sounds really cool. And, uh, you can't forget that the Xbox SDK now basically supports any universal Windows platform application as a deployable application to Xbox One. Mm, and there true. are like Dragon I know I just remember this because they did it on stage. There's this drag and drop utility where you can drag some old DXE that is not UWP and they dragged Age of Empires 2 into it and it became mm, a UWP beloved, app. My beloved Age of Empire 2. <laughs> and suddenly you can put that on Xbox. So I mean like there are ways to make it work I guess uh for PC and I guess that's how you get more Windows developers to embrace the Xbox, I guess. But we'll see. So last but not least, a surprise. This is not new from the last year, but it is new to me from two year, two days ago when I got an invite to the GeForce Now beta. Uh, I signed up to the GeForce Now beta a couple months ago, and I completely forgot I did. GeForce Now is an NVIDIA game streaming service, uh, which is available on PC, Mac, and NVIDIA Shield. It is bring your own games, and NVIDIA provides the gaming PC in the cloud. Interestingly, for the time of the beta, it is completely free, uh, which is great for me, I guess. Uh, it just means I have like this free gaming PC with a, what I, what is it, GTX 1080 living in the cloud that I can just log into whenever I want, so that's cool. Uh, there are four different quality presets, letting you choose which trade-offs you're willing to make, and honestly, this is one of my favorite parts of the entire uh service you have these four presets response time graphics frame rate data usage choose whichever metric you want to optimize for and you can go for it and when you highlight each of these uh presets there's an estimate of how much hourly data usage it's going to use right next to it uh the lowest one is four gigabytes an hour for data saver and i think it goes all the way to 10 or 12 uh if you take the higher ones they support Steam, Epic Game Store, Battle.net, and there is a selection of games that are available for individual download outside of a launcher also as well. The interface is terrible for browsing which games you can actually play on GeForce Now. Like, you can't actually get to a Windows Explorer window or go download whichever games you want. You have to launch them from either uh, the vetted games or these launchers that are supported which I guess is a slightly better user experience, but it also kind of limits what you can do with those games. Uh, I briefly tried two games at very different extremes of the visual flair axis. I tried Magic Arena and Destiny 2. 
So Magic Arena is not very taxing on the CPU or GPU. Just to give like some perspective, uh, if I try to run it through Wine on my MacBook Pro with integrated graphics, it runs smoothly at 60 FPS. So it's not a super... <laughs> oh, wow. That's a hard game to run. The only reason I don't run it in Wine is because there are a bunch of other Wine compatibility issues that make it so that uh, it crashes after like 15 minutes. And then as soon as there's a patch, you have to reinstall the entire game because the patcher doesn't work. Uh, so not great on wine, uh, but obviously this runs absolutely fine at 60 FPS via GeForce Now. It has none of the headaches of wine, so it's kind of the no-brainer way to keep playing Magic Arena on my Mac, uh, at least without installing Windows, as I wait for the Mac version to release later this year. So in the meantime, I'll be using this, and it also means like I can probably upgrade to Catalina and not care that wine doesn't work anymore. And then on Destiny 2, uh, thanks to cross-save, all of my PS4 Destiny 2 characters were right there and ready to be oh, used that's with awesome. all of my gear, which is new from this year's expansion. Uh, it is super disorienting to be playing Destiny with a mouse and keyboard because I've been playing with a controller for the last, like, what, six years? Uh, so, yeah, that was weird, and I haven't played really first-person shooters at all on the Mac since, like, Team Fortress 2. So that's a long time ago. Uh, <laughs> it was like 15 years ago or something. The only real visual issues that I noticed... Oh, by the way, I was playing on data saver mode, in case that matters. Uh, the only real visual issues I noticed were in dark areas, where the frame rate just tanks immediately. And it's the compressor that's trying to adapt to nuanced gradients of dark gray on the walls. And that's pretty much the only issue I had with Destiny 2. In general, all frame drops I experienced were from compressor adaptation where it either changed the output resolution because of a change in available bandwidth on my modem or to maintain a good frame rate or because of a massive change in dynamic range like I just mentioned. And when these frame drops happened, they were usually like between 0.3 and 0.5 seconds. And then it immediately went back to 60, which is pretty nice, honestly. Uh, I wouldn't want to play like Resident Evil or something on there because that's an entire game where stuff is dark usually. Uh, well, depending on the game, but, um, for most games with like vibrant color palettes, it's probably not going to be an issue. Uh, so yeah, it ran smoothly at 60 FPS and at a much higher resolution than I had anticipated. I ran a speed test after I played the game just to have some stats to sprinkle in here. So I, I have a 90 megabit down connection and 6.4 up which is very asynchronous. It's kind of weird. Uh, so there was perceptible input lag in Destiny 2, whereas there wasn't in Magic Arena. And I kind of figured out why this is. Uh, depending on which API you use to draw your mouse cursor, the GeForce Now app will cheat and basically have the cursor be rendered by the GeForce Now process instead of rendered on the cloud and streamed to you, which is what Magic Arena does. Destiny 2 has a weird cursor that changes in very strange ways. So it is completely exempt from this API usage and your mouse always feels a little bit behind from where it should be, but it's not a huge deal. Uh, far more of the screen moves when your cursor does camera movement, which means you're transmitting more data per frame than parts of the game where your cursor is moving against a static background. The input lag was perceptible, but the game was still fundamentally playable, although like, unlike on Stadia, where everyone is dealing with more or less the same amount of input lag, uh, you are going to be at, dis at a disadvantage for PvP modes against actual PC players who are playing locally on their machine because they don't have the input lag at all. What's interesting is I've played Destiny 2 on both 
this and on PS4 Remote Play. So I can sort of compare the two. And it felt, the input lag felt less intense than the input lag I feel when playing over Remote Play. But it's also very hard to compare because Destiny 2 runs at 30 FPS on consoles, where it was, whereas it was running 60 FPS on my GeForce Now setup. And the last note I have about GeForce Now uh, is just something that I was not expecting. GeForce Now asks for microphone permission every time you launch a new game because it actually transfers it to the remote PC as voice chat. Oh, that's nice. It's nice. It's just also weird because I didn't know voice chat was on by default on Destiny for PC. <laughs> so, <laughs> oops. Sorry to the people who were listening to ATP with me in the lobby the other night. So, <laughs> oopsie. In conclusion, the climate around cloud gaming is quite negative, and honestly, I think it might be stuck that way forever. One of the biggest factors in the viability of these cloud streaming services is how much bandwidth you've got access to and how reliable your ISP is. And thanks to phone and cable monopolies worldwide, you may be stuck in a market where you don't really have an alternative if your ISP is shitty. And given my own personal rocky internet situation, although fingers crossed this is not going to be an issue for this episode, uh, I would be very reluctant to play anything over a cloud gaming service that isn't an online-only multiplayer game to begin with. I think those games have the most to gain from streaming, as I mentioned earlier, and luckily some MMO MMO developers have gotten the hint. Uh, Fantasy Star Online 2 is available as a streaming version on PC and Switch in Japan. Dragon Quest X is available as a streaming version on iOS and Android and previously 3DS. And Elder Scrolls Online is currently on the list of games that are coming to Stadia. So what this means is if Final Fantasy XIV ever comes to Stadia, I will probably snatch up whatever I need to buy to actually get on Stadia and rebuy it and all the expansions so I can play it in a much more convenient manner. Uh, because right now it's kind of awkward. I'm, I need to play on my PS4. I would like to play on my, uh, on my work setup, uh, work, but my work PC cannot run 14. I tried. It's not great. Uh, so if I could just stream 14 onto my work PC during lunch hour would be great. Um, but right now that's not really viable. I never really understood those services, mainly because I think they would work great for me personally. Uh, but as you saw, I'm kind of a mix between a casual gamer and an hardcore gamer, more tending on the casual. I don't game too much, especially in the past years or so. I guess we can go revisit our Game of the Year episode for my uh, anecdotes of 2019. But those services are like a services of compromises. And I'm always surprised that uh, they are aimed at hardcore gamers or at the gaming market, mainly because... I am about to generalize, but in general, people want to optimize to get the best thing ever. And that's what we've seen is casual gaming went on the phone where like everybody has a phone, everything is accessible. And then when people want to game, they either are like Yannick and I on consoles with kind of the middle ground. It's like better than casual games and then not as hardcore as like getting a gaming PC and then updating all the parts in it every year to get the latest parts. Whereas I feel those services are optimized for those people that are like strong on the gaming PC, but what they want is the best performance. I wouldn't say the cheapest way to get performance, but I would say the best performance to be as, uh, as good at the, as they can be humanly possible, I would say. Uh, and sadly, those restrictions and limitation of cloud computing, uh, is, 
running against that and i'm always surprised that the people like not people but uh companies are always kind of disappointed that their service is not successful because like inherently the way our networks are currently built i feel those limitations will get like really hard or nearly impossible to get removed and one of the things that i found really interesting was i was talking to one of my friends in japan back in october uh he's looking into buying a ps4 for one game and Mm. he was saying like i really hope stadia just kills off the entire console market and we can just live with that and i found that very interesting because if you speak to gamers in north america nobody thinks that and in fact they're viscerally opposed to that whereas japan has the network infrastructure where it fundamentally doesn't make a difference for them and they're mostly playing games that are online services and that are not uh, games that are excited about like owning forever. So to them, like Stadia is just like a really good solution to their problems that they have. And that's why generally the Japanese market seems to be far more optimistic about Stadia and similar services than we are over here. What's strange though is that so many of these services, because they rely on data centers that are close uh, to to their locales, many of them simply aren't available in Japan right now. And Stadia, I believe, is the only one that is like launching in Japan, or I think it might be supported soon or something in between. Um, but the important thing is like they're not ignoring the Japanese market, which is smart because Google is a huge brand in Japan in a way that they're not really present anywhere else. Um, so I don't know. It, it, it was just a very interesting and refreshing take when i heard my friend say that because i was so used to like months and months of negativity about stadia and then he's just out here saying ah i just wish stadia would succeed and i was like holy shit there's someone else who kind of wants this to succeed too yeah and you know what i can get behind uh this thinking for the main reason let's say i think my gaming experience is of that uh for this generation it was good to commit on sony's platform because the ps4 is a great console and more or less got all of the good gaming like home gaming games the um but there are a couple of games and uh, games and i would say it's not that much like i would say a handful so i'm not even going as high as 10 games but like a handful of games where i would have liked to play them and they are maybe on the pc and in like like we mentioned, especially uh, these days, if they're on the PC, there's a big chance that they're also on the Xbox or the inverse. If they're on Xbox, there's a big chance that they're on PC. So a solution that can give me for cheap, let's say, I don't know, for a couple of months, I pay like $20, $30 per month, go play those games. I paid around the same price as if I would have bought that game, but I didn't have to make a commitment on a gaming PC or a hardware console for literally three games. And I recalled one of your main arguments in a lot of our video game uh, episodes is literally the cost of acquisition of a platform, knowing that maybe you will play a handful of game, which in most cases we've defined that uh, is not really viable. If you have the money, you can throw the money at a problem, but still like, like it's not something that we've suggested in our past episode. And that could, those products, could be a solution for that you have a ps4 you play all your ps4 games on the ps4 you want to play i don't know uh forza because you like uh, car games like we do and you don't want to buy xbox one so you just play 
for the next two or three months, you pay the subscription service, and then you're like, man, ah, it's good. I've experienced that game, and then you quit it, and that's it. Yeah, honestly, I would love to play Forza Horizon 4 because I bought it for my brother, and it looks awesome, but I don't have the hardware to play it, so I'm just going to like play what I'm over. My brother's there, but that's about it. It's like, if I could just like log into xCloud and pay for Game Pass, I could just play it whenever I want, and that would be really neat. And to me, that's where I hope they will, those uh, platform services will survive is to, uh, is to do that. A bit like what my Microsoft is doing with xCloud. It's like kind of this uh, forward, backward compatibility. Also, like maybe gaining a bit more of, uh, gamers that are where on Sony platforms that they want to try their exclusive content. Uh, that could be a way. Yep. So just to recap the, the services I mentioned, uh, despite being spearheaded by someone who should know by now how gamers behave and react, Stadia has had more communication problems with it, with its audience than I had expected. And my optimism in Google's ability to move the needle in game streaming space has quickly dissipated. xCloud really seems to have nailed responsiveness, game ownership issues, and ease of use in a way that no other service really compares, which is incredibly promising. It's just not a product yet, but I can't wait for that to actually be a product. And GeForce Now can be incredibly clunky at times because you're still interfacing with launchers like Steam and Battle.net on a remote PC instead of something more elegant like xCloud. But if you're a casual Mac gamer, it is a far less flaky option for gaming than Wine, and it'll probably give you much better graphics than your integrated GPU could ever wish for. (laughs) I strongly doubt that uh, cloud gaming will ever be as good as local gaming just because network environments are less predictable and reliable by default. But there are some things that it's incredibly well suited for, and I hope the negative climate surrounding cloud gaming won't kill the entire market segment before it's really had the time to shine. And that's it. Good. If you want to go through the list of uh, links in the show notes for this week's episode, I guess maybe you have links to get this uh, Stadia package if you want to uh, join Stadia. It's the you said the, it's the uh, Platinum Premium. <sighs> what is it called? Premiere, I think. Premiere, yes. Yeah, it was a Premiere package where you gave the game control. I'm sure Yannick will have put a link in the show notes. If you and have those... a Founders Edition buddy code, please send it to me because I want to try it out anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Uh, if you have one, don't send it to me. You can send it to Yannick. Uh, I don't not really interested, and I would really uh, like to have Yannick play that. But yeah, so if you want to uh, send that code, I guess uh, we'll uh, give you Yannick's information of Twitter. But first, the show notes are available at limitlesspossibility.net slash 129. You can find our back catalog episode at limitlesspossibility.net. You can find the show on Twitter at at limipo underscore podcast. That's L-I-M-I-P-O underscore podcast. Great place to send the DM code, the DM for the code. Or if you want to send it directly to Yannick on Twitter, you can find him at Sakurina. That's S-A-K-U-R-I-N-A. DMs are not open on the Limipo account right now, though. <laughs> Oopsie. So yeah, maybe we should do that. Uh, and you can find myself on Twitter at Lukonosh. That's L-U-C-C-O-N-O-U-C-H-E. And we'll see you in two weeks. See you in two weeks.